9.30 p.m., a body was recovered from the Red River near the Alexander Docks. An Ontario Docks. woman says her father committed brutal murders and buried the bodies. The Amber Alert is still in effect in parts of Canada for a two-year-old girl who authorities believe was abducted from her home around... What about that city made it possible for, for six serial killers to be operating in that Millions town? Millions of dollars' worth of maple syrup has been siphoned off from storage in Quebec, with the crime covered up Those to Those men had planned for a year to find the used Dodge 3500 pickup truck through online classifieds. You ever been interviewed by the police in a, in a room like this before? Welcome to True North Crime. I'm Shelley. I'm Rachel. And today we have a special guest. Yeah, Jacob Stillman here. And Esquire. <laughs> no, not Esquire. No? Well, he's Just... the only one in a suit here, so... <laughs> I am wearing a suit, but I'm a criminal defense counsel. Excellent, excellent. Well, that will be very handy because you're going to give us some advice and uh, and explain to us how the debacle that we're going to introduce today happened. Yes, absolutely. So today we are going to be just discussing Guy Paul Moraine. And, and this the, is Rachel's pick. This is this was my pick. I chose this case today. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> you hope you learn something. I hope it. you learn something from it. Yes, I hope we all learn something from this. Okay, so the Canadian Encyclopedia describes this particular case as, quote, a compendium of official error from an accurate eyewitness testimony to police tunnel vision to scientific bungling and the suppression of evidence, end quote. So on October 3rd, 1984, nine-year-old Christine Jessup disappeared from her school, or sorry, from her home in Queensville, Ontario. When her family arrived home that afternoon, they found her school bag in the house, but there was no sign of Christine. The disappearance caused a panic in the community, and that night hundreds of police, firefighters, and volunteers were out searching for her. Her remains weren't found until the literal end of the year, December 31st. A farmer found her body in his field. She had been raped and stabbed, and because this farm was over 50 kilometers from Queensville, it put it in another jurisdiction. The case was transferred from York Regional Police to Durham Regional Police. And from what I understand, these two police forces didn't get along, which led to the improper transmission or transfer of information, as well as outright suppression of information. It has also been noted that both of these police forces didn't have a lot of experience with this type of case. Uh, semen stains were found in Christine's underwear, uh, but as this was early days in DNA technology, the samples had deteriorated and attempts to extract the DNA profiles failed. The months-long investigation uh, turned up little evidence. Meanwhile, police investigators grew close with the Jessup family and they would share a lot of information with Christine's parents about suspects and other aspects of the case. These discussions would eventually jeopardize the integrity of the Jessup's testimony in court. An example, uh, the leading, as an example, sorry, the leading investigator persuaded Christine's mother and brother to reconsider what time they had arrived home on October 3rd. Initially, they had said around 4.10 in the afternoon, but then they thought, okay, maybe 4.35. Uh, and these 25 minutes opened up uh, a window of opportunity for their lead suspect, Guy Paul Morin, who was the Jessup's next door neighbor. Um, with the, the change in the timing, uh, police believe that Guy had a window of opportunity in which he could arrive home from work and abduct Christine before her mother and brother got to the house. 
Now, Guy lived with his parents, uh, and the family was relatively new to the Queensville community. He worked in a factory, specifically, I believe he finished furniture. He kept bees, and he played the clarinet, and I believe also the saxophone. The people of Queensville, as well as the police, thought the Moraines were reclusive and combative. No one liked their house, as it was surrounded by junk and other work materials. Uh, the police first became interested in Guy in February of 1985, when Christine's mother mentioned that their neighbor was, quote, a weird type guy. It stated that Maury, or sorry, Guy drew suspicion to himself by not joining the search for Christine and by not attending her funeral, which was held in January in 1985. The police set up surveillance and they interviewed Guy. Uh, during, uh, during the interview, or sorry, during the surveillance and the interviews, he didn't do or say anything that could point to him as having anything to do with Christine's murder. But the police suspected him nonetheless. The cops thought it was strange that he knew where Christine's remains had been found, even though this was public knowledge. He also made a statement about how little girls grow up to be corrupted. And the police interpreted that to mean that he might have had a problem with women or girls. So wait, for a second. Yeah. He made the statement that little girls grow up to be corrupt. Like, where did he make the statement? In a, he just made it in an interview. I don't know the context. Yeah, it was in... Well, I can jump in. It sure. was yeah. It was in his interview in February uh, after he sort of became uh, enmeshed in this thing through the comments of the, uh, of the neighbor. And I think the precise words were, little girls start out innocent. But, yes. Uh, grow up to be corrupted or something along those lines obviously probably an ill-advised comment but Mm -hmm. given he he was an idiosyncratic type of person and these kind of people might say inappropriate things particularly in the pressure of a police interview Right, and they already have a bias against him at this point, right? Oh, they totally were on... They had actually maintained surveillance of him for a number of days before approaching him for this interview, and then they interviewed him for something like two hours. Yeah, so it would upset anybody. So uh, that was his response. Yeah, I think understandable, maybe in the context. Well, we'll continue on. Yeah, so the police got a hold of Guy's time card from work, which effectively proved that it would have been extremely difficult, if not outright impossible, for him to leave work, uh, go home, kidnap and kill Christine, dump her body, uh, and then get back to his house within before her parents came home and discovered her missing. Well, not quite. Uh, the The timeline was this. They, they, Christine gets dropped off at about, I think, 10 to 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, her mother said that she had got home, that she was home by 4.10. Yeah. It would have been impossible, given Gipal's time card, for him to have been back home from work before the arrival of, of, um, um, uh, I think it was Janet, uh, the mother, uh, Jessup. And and Christine's brother. Yes, Ken. Ken. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that became sort of an important element here, and that, as you alluded to in your introduction, became one of the sort of major examples of police tunnel vision mm-hmm. and sort of re- result-oriented thinking, 
when they came back and after ascertaining that his alibi uh, would not uh, would hold up and exonerate him, that's when they went to town on the Jessops and effectively got them to modify their uh, arrival time of being closer to 4.30. And there was all sorts of nonsense about, oh, uh, our clock was wrong, and uh, uh, all kinds of contradictory. Is that a misremember, or is that like a legitimate thing, or is this kind of the Jessup's just wanting to finger uh, someone as well? Or the police. I, I, I think it was very, look, in fairness to the Jessup's, they... I mean, their, their motives or their, I guess, way of thinking can certainly be understood. They've lost a daughter. The police are telling them that the guy who did it is their next-door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. And they are motivated, whether uh, consciously or unconsciously, to start second-guessing uh, their own recollection. Mm-hmm. I think the, the question, some of it, I think, and certainly the... I don't. It's not me to think. I mean, in reviewing the Kaufman report, some of some of what uh, they came up with was, I think, pretty well determined to be uh, consciously fabricated. Mm-hmm. This business of the clock. Uh, she said she threw the clock out at some point because it was defective, and you <laughs> right. could see, in a, apparently, in a in a. In a it was documented that she had not thrown the clock out. So there were definitely some conscious fabrications. Uh, interesting enough, at the commission, when the uh, inquiry uh, was held at the Kaufman Commission, she she and Ken Jessup actually went back to the 410 time of arrival uh, once once Guy Palmoran was fully exonerated. Mm-hmm, right. uh, they, they actually... Uh, recanted the their uh, previous uh, trial testimony, hmm. so it's a very much a function of uh, the the police putting a bug in their ear yeah. and them taking the bait and running with it. So Guy was arrested on April twenty second, nineteen eighty five, for first degree murder. He was denied bail and spent ten months in the Whitby jail. Awaiting trial. Trial is that, is that a, the like, first. Is that actually legal to be held for ten months for something that? You're... Oh yeah, people. No, absolutely. You raise a good point, Shelley. People spend sometimes multiple years in pretrial detention uh, on homicide cases. Mm-hmm. It's pretty difficult to get bail. On a homicide, mm-hmm. uh, it does happen, but it's uh, the exception, and uh, it's not uncommon for some people to sit in jail for three or four years in pretrial custody. Uh, his ten months in pretrial detention is actually relatively short by today's standards. I mean, of course, when it saga unfolded he was out of custody for most Mm -hmm. of the proceedings because he was acquitted Mm -hmm. at his first trial and then remained out of custody until he was ultimately convicted at the second Mm -hmm. and then served a a portion he he began to serve jail but then got bail pending appeal as well Mm -hmm. uh yeah so at his first trial um, the Crown painted Guy as a misfit who was sexually obsessed with Christine. 
But the physical against him was a hair found on Christine that matched Guy's hair sample. Uh, and hairs found in Guy's car that matched Christine's. And fibers on Christine's clothes that could have come from Guy's home and car. The Crown also had two jailhouse informants who claim uh, Guy had blurted out a confession late one night. Um, and I believe there was an undercover cop who spent four days as Guy's cellmate trying to get him to confess. To no avail. To no avail, right? Uh, Guy's lawyer attacked the credibility of the snitches and exposed a deal that they had made with the Crown. The Crown had offered these guys leniency in their own cases in return for their testimony, which I understand was a relatively common yeah, practice. and I, uh, just to just to back up, you mentioned the hair and fiber analysis. Oh, yeah. this was, oh we will get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, so we'll just Not flag that for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I okay. even came across that one. I was like, mm. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's right. Uh, it it was hair and fiber that was very questionable. Mm-hmm. Kaufman. Commission had a lot to say about that, and the jailhouse rats who uh, were uh, quite quite the ensemble cast. (laughs) Uh, I have here also the defense counsel um, also pointed out that the police's investigative shortcomings, improper collection and retention of physical evidence from the farmer's field, uh, and the police notes that were either missing, inadequate, or misleading. or outright perjurous, or outright. actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All sort of pointed to uh, reasons for an acquittal. Uh, the defense argued the physical evidence, the hairs and the fibers, could have come from anywhere. Uh, and it says here that later in the trial, defense counsel offered an alternative theory that Guy might be insane and could not be held accountable for his actions. Uh, two psychiatrists were brought in who testified that Guy was moderately schizophrenic. And if he did kill Christine, it could have happened during uh, an hallucinatory episode. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was, just to be clear, you're talking about the first this trial. This is all the first trial. Yes. Yeah. So that was the first trial. And um, that was a uh, certainly... A questionable tactic mm-hmm. by his lawyer, um, but essentially he said either he didn't do it or if he did it, he was He's, insane. Uh, yeah. The judge, uh, well, the court of appeal reversed, yes. uh, overturned the acquittal, mm-hmm. um, mainly based on the judge's uh, instructions on reasonable yes. doubt yeah. and how the jury should deal with that. Uh, but certainly it it cast it cast a long shadow over the proceedings and looked a little bit too clever by half. <laughs> yeah, um, it says here after del- deliberating, but he, did, but he was acquitted. He was acquitted. Yeah. It worked after deliberating for less than a day. The jury yeah. found Guy. Uh, well, I guess this is a point that I, of law that I don't fully understand. He was. An acquittal is different from not guilty. Is that right? No, that's not right. An oh, acquittal okay. is <laughs> not guilty. guilty. It's the same thing. Okay. My dad always made the point of saying those are two different things. No, and well, where'd your dad go? Where'd your dad go to law school? Because they should uh, take away that accreditation. All right then. <laughs> and he, he was found not guilty on February seventh, nineteen eighty six. 
Um, everyone in the community was pissed. The Jessup family, the police, and the news media, they all believed that Guy had killed Christine. Can we also, for just our listeners out there, um, explain reasonable doubt? Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're moving right along. All right. Yes. Well. <laughs> so the crown. We can try. We can we, try. We should probably yeah, try. That's, how, that's what led a... to the second trial. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that the crown um, appealed the acquittal and claimed that the judge had made a mistake when he told the jury the meaning of reasonable doubt. So what is reasonable doubt? And... What happened here that, how okay. could you explain in such a way as to confuse a jury? Well, re, I mean, re, the, the criminal standard is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, there's really, well, it's, uh, well, the term is, tri, you know, trips off everybody's tongue and everybody knows it. Uh, it is I suppose, ultimately, when you really have to turn your mind to it, difficult to articulate. Uh, in, a, in a civil case, uh, the, the one side has to prove its case on what we call a balance of probability. So it is more probable than not that, you know, driver A is negligent in causing the accident and the injuries of, to, to driver B. And that's simply on a balance of probabilities. So if you think about it mathematically, it's 50% plus one. Of course, it's very difficult to ever quantify uh, events uh, in that, in the mathematically quantify uh, events and evidence, but that's the picture. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt means uh, close to absolute certainty. Obviously, one can never be 100%, I mean, well, there are situations where you can be 100% certain of something, um, but you don't have to be 100% certain. You just have to be certain beyond a reasonable doubt. And I know that sounds circular uh, on a certain level, but essentially it means very certain, or as I said in a seminar, really fucking certain. <laughs> but not. So it's not a hundred percent. Yeah, but, but it's damn close. But it's damn. Yeah. But not, but as they say in their instructions, to a mathematical certainty. Right. Um, Otherwise, no one would ever be guilty, probably. Well, I mean, you still may have some people who are guilty, and the and the the origins of uh, of of the reasonable doubt standard are very interesting, but I think beyond the scope of right. this discussion, um, the problem at trial number one for Paul wasn't wasn't a uh, a misstatement of the standard of reasonable doubt as much as it was a misdirection as to how to approach reasonable doubt and the judge effectively instructed the jury to entertain reasonable doubt on each sort of individual component of the evidence rather than look at the crown's case as a whole oh, okay. uh, and then ask yourself whether this evidence proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt so instead he broke it down into constituent elements 
And as I understand it, said, well, you know, hair and fiber, does that prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt? Uh, the, you know, the timeline, does that, does that prove the case right. beyond a reasonable doubt? And so on and so forth. So uh, the, the Court of Appeal reversed, and I mean, on that level, correctly so. Uh, it's pretty basic that you, you don't break down the Crown's case piecemeal and say, uh, does each individual constituent element establish okay. uh, do you consider each individual constituent element as establishing the case beyond a reasonable doubt so it was so valid it, it wasn't just the crown was upset that, that lo- they lost well <laughs> or, like, you know uh in hindsight it's very unfortunate that the judge misdirected the jury but mm-hmm. uh it, it probably was not and and it went to the supreme court and the supreme mm-hmm. court uh, declined to hear the okay appeal, so in uh, the time leaning the, up to uh, court of appeals reversal second trial so uh, uh a new that, his that, new legal team fought to get their hands on a two. huge number of police reports it probably that didn't had not been made available the first time around the defense got a little some of these report, uh, reports raised serious questions about the integrity right. of okay. the physical evidence also would have used in the, the first trial others pointed to viable suspects who were never fully investigated worse still was the revelation that christine's brother ken had induced her into having sex with him and his buddies when she was seven years old. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> it was, was a bit not- of a, it was, it was a red herring. Yeah. Put it that way. Ken Jessup and his buddies did not murder mm-hmm. Christine Jessup. But still, hurties, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Who knows what Pretty you'll awful. find when you scratch. Right. A little bit. I'm... Guy's defense used these reports to allege the police had fabricated a case against him because he was a bit of, quote, a weird type guy. Uh, Defense suggested there were other, more viable suspects, uh, but the cops had single-mindedly pursued Guy. Uh, The Crown brought in witnesses who had not testified in the first trial. The police had since, or these people had since remembered stuff, most of it about Guy's behavior, which, to them, suggested that he was guilty. The testimony included a constable who claimed to have visited Guy uh, at home the night Christine disappeared, stating that Guy had appeared unconcerned about the missing girl. Another witness was Christine's best friend, who told a story about how this one time she and Christine were talking to Guy, and he was gripping a pair of hedge clippers so tightly that his knuckles turned white. Yeah, that's, that's evidence. Yeah, evidence. <laughs> real evidence of guilt right there. This trial went on for nine months, and the jury found him guilty. And this was at the end of July in 1992. That's right. Um, there were all sorts of, there were a number of very, and the, the again, the Kaufman report deals extensively mm-hmm. with these various witnesses. You mentioned a couple. There were others, too. Uh, there was <clears throat> a very uh dubious test the very dubious testimony of a police officer who was with the york region who claimed that his dog had uh, indicated uh, the possible presence of christine in uh, the moran car and uh, that was just uh, completely absurd it was demonstrably false evidence on so many levels and yet it still went before the jury all sorts of evidence that 
ostensibly amounted to consciousness of guilt that was firstly uh, questionable in terms of its uh, provenance. Uh, many of these supposed indications or events or uh, behaviors that were attributed to to Guy Paul likely had never occurred or were very much the product of sort of confabulation by these witnesses who were at that point so convinced of his guilt that they sort of started doing the math in their own heads and, and re, reordering events. Um, but that- also they were so non-probative of guilt. I, I mean, uh, right. that somebody doesn't go out and join in the search, mm-hmm. that somebody uh, doesn't attend the funeral... Um, these are, uh, these are, and, and, and certainly the report spoke to this, these items of evidence never should have gone before the jury to begin with. Uh, and yet they did. The crown was really able to freewheel and put in all sorts of effectively character evidence, spin it in a way that, uh, produced a a very uh, clear narrative. So how, uh, how does that happen? How does that type of evidence get, or well, evidence, well, testimony get permitted? Well, the, the Crown seeks to call it, and perhaps the defense objects, but the trial judge was uh, no friend of the defense in this case. Right. And uh, gave the Crown pretty well free reign. I mean, uh, the case was appealed, obviously, and then... Before the appeal proper was heard, uh, he was fully exonerated by DNA. We're getting ahead of the story here a little bit. (laughs) Had the DNA evidence not exonerated him, the appeal certainly would have focused on those types of rulings uh, and, uh, you know, asked asked for guidance from the Court of Appeal as to how to deal with very dubious uh, like even if true, uh, the, this white knuckle business, which right. was questionable to begin with, but even assuming it's true, should something like that go to the jury? What does it right. establish? Yeah. And these days, consciousness of guilt type evidence has a very uh, has to be highly, highly probative. It basically can only go to the jury when there is virtually no other. Um, plausible explanation for the, the behavior that's being uh, t- being tendered. The, right. the ostensible behavior that's being tendered has to be probative of consciousness of guilt and not explainable by any other uh, potential motive. So, so it's a fairly high standard to get that in because often it often it sort of uh, straddles areas of character evidence and. Uh, things where you're really putting the person's character on trial rather than uh, the question of, you know, factual guilt or innocence. Right. And so that witness testimony and being allowed in, those witnesses were more character witnesses than actual witnesses. So how much weight does that have with a jury and how does is that allowed in by the same means or? Well, again, there's very... There should be a very high burden on the Crown before they are able to tender that evidence. I mean, the the role of a trial judge uh, with a jury when they're presiding over a jury case is to be the gatekeeper. Right. Because evidence that's overly prejudicial Mm -hmm. 
doesn't get heard by the jury. And, and what, all, what it always comes down to is a debate. It's sort of a threshold debate. Does this particular piece of evidence cross the threshold so that it is overly prejudicial or otherwise inadmissible uh, and should not be heard, period? Or does it become a question of weight? Should the jury hear it? And maybe it's lame evidence, and if it's really lame evidence, well, then the jury will do the right thing with it. I mean, that's the Crown's argument always, and the defense's argument is, no, this this must not go, it's inflammatory, it's prejudicial, it's not probative of the issues that, 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 that so, the jury needs to contemplate. Given your experience, and given this case in particular, is it is it known that certain trial judges have a prejudice towards a Crown or it defense? It would sound like... Because if you're a defense, if you're in defense and you're like, oh, we pulled John, damn, like, you know, like does. And also, is there, um, if that judge shows a certain amount of prejudice, is there not recourse or is there not any incentive for the judge to then reassess his bias? Well, <laughs> judges are <laughs> judges are human beings and they bring their own biases sure. and. Yeah. There are judges who are known as hanging judges, and yeah. there are judges who are have reputations of being a much more pro-defense. Right. Uh, the judge in the Moran trial number two uh, certainly uh, was no friend of the defense. I, I won't speak generally. Mm-hmm. I will only speak to that particular mm-hmm. case where he made ruling after ruling that went against the defense uh, and some fairly bizarre displays. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get into the Mikulowski uh, testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a cop who was up on perjury charges for having two 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 sets of notes, and he misled <laughs> oh misled God. the court at the first trial. This was uncovered. He had right. two sets of notes. He <laughs> was. I mean, it, it, it's complicated and it gets sort of into wheels within wheels. Right. Um, but he was uh, called as a witness, not by the Crown, but by the defense, which allowed the Crown to cross-examine and therefore right. control the witness. But be, he also was claiming to have uh, life-threatening, I don't know, cardiac condition. In other words, he managed to claim that uh, if he's too stressed, he might keel over dead in the witness box. Oh, my God. So. Well, that's actually not funny. I'm laughing, but it's funny. Well, yeah. So he he was allowed to testify. The judge ordered that nobody will wear robes. Everyone will just be seated. The judge shook his hand at the end of his evidence. Um, not actually, that wasn't in front of the jury, although the court clerk did shake his hand in front of the jury. In other words, he was treated with absolute kid gloves. Right. And, and, uh, this was a guy who had absolutely falsified his evidence at the Mm -hmm. first trial. And yet he was given all sorts of latitude and these were rulings made by the trial judge. So you're sending a message to the jury that this guy is special. Uh, interesting enough for all of his coronary conditions that would, you know, possibly send them to the great beyond if he if if you weren't too nice to him. 
he lived quite a few years later and ultimately died of cancer. Oh, I, oh <laughs> my God. So, oh, and God. the perjury charges against him were stayed ostensibly because That's of it. his very poor health. Of course. Wow. wow. So he yeah. really milked that one yeah, for all it was sure worth. Did. <laughs> okay. Lucky guy, unlucky Guy Paul. Eh? So Jeez. let's get into the, this final acquittal here. All right. Uh, within weeks of the confession of the conviction, sorry, the news media uh, now on Guy's side were raising doubts about the fairness uh, of uh, the investigation and the trials. A grassroots organization sprang up to help him, called Justice for Guy, the Justice for Guy Paul Maureen Committee. Uh, this committee later became the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, now called Innocence Canada. That's right. Uh, the committee's goal was to help Guy appeal his convictions and to have him released on bail while waiting for the appeal to be decided. And in February of 1993, he was released from Kingston Pen on bail pending his appeal, which I understand um, was uncommon at the oh, time. De- de- definitely not the norm yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to get out. I mean, there were very serious concerns raised about the propriety of this conviction the moment that it came down. Um, I mean, the irony is that when he got acquitted at the first trial, the whole world thought he was guilty. And when he got convicted at the second trial, the whole world (laughs) thought he was innocent. So uh, it's one of those very... I mean, yeah. that's, that's why this case sort of is well, I mean, in the pantheon of, of notorious yeah. criminal cases. It, 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 it always kind of resonated. Yeah. Well, the guy likes to play solo clarinet, so obviously he's guilty. Oh, this guy right? something wrong so, with him. Yeah. And, keep, <laughs> and keep bees. And, and keep bees, yeah, right? Exactly. Well, he was, a, he was a weirdo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he and was <laughs> the odd duck in a small community. Exactly. As his appeal date was nearing... One last attempt, the third overall, was made to get a DNA profile from the semen found in Christine's underwear. Technology had advanced by this point, uh, and I believe it was a lab in Boston was yep. able to get a reading, and it didn't belong to Guy. So it in, wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't him. <laughs> That's right. Although that didn't stop some the crowns who had prosecuted this case from still clinging oh, to the God. belief that it oh, was him yes. for some period of time. Yeah. Um, it took a while. It took a while for her to Chill. come around. <laughs> yeah, so three days later, uh, on the date of Guy's appeal, the prosecutor apologized to Moray and asked the court to overturn his conviction. Uh, the Crown statement reads, quote, the evidence proves as an ind- indisputable scientific fact that Mr. Murray is not guilty of the first-degree murder of Christine Jessup and should be acquitted. Um, so Guy's conviction was changed to acquittal in 1995. That's not guilty, by the way, is why I'm so... Not guilty. <laughs> Vacated, is that the... I don't know what words to use. The, the conviction was quashed. And quashed. There acquit- we go. Good. And the court <laughs> substituted works. the acquittal. Right. Um, so he was... He was yeah. rewarded or awarded. Yes, say. well, yeah, he was awarded some money. We'll get there in a sec. So I have some notes here about the report. Uh, in 1996, the Ontario government created a public inquiry into the gross miscarriage of justice, uh, and it's called the the Kaufman Report, or I guess the Commission Proceedings Involving Guy Paul Moray. Is that correct? The Commission. Or- the Commission Proceedings Involving Guy Paul Moray. Yeah, the Commission on Proceedings the Involving Guy Paul Moray. Okay, Paul Moran. there we go. That's the, 
otherwise known as the Kaufman Report, um, found that the investigation and prosecution of Guy featured, quote, tunnel vision of the most staggering proportions. Uh, basically, to sum up, uh, Guy's case, an example of confirmation bias in the extreme. <laughs> tunnel vision, bad science, and unreliable witness testimony led to Guy's wrongful conviction. Right. And let's let's get into the bad science because this is awful. Oh, bad science is a, is a hobby of mine personally. <laughs> I have a really I have a really deep hate for pseudoscience, a deep deep rooted hate. Well, this this <laughs> so. is going to upset you. Yeah. A lot. Oh no, I know it already. I've I uh, have so many problems with this. The forensic scientist who analyzed the, the hair. hairs right, right. failed to adequately explain the limitations of this kind of evidence to the police, so they thought the hairs were a strong link between Christine and Guy. Hair comparison isn't used today because of its inherent frailties, and it has led to other wrongful convictions in the past. So at the time, Jacob, maybe you can tell us, was it considered reliable generally in courts? Because there's a lot of uh, misconceptions even yeah. in law about how reliable forensic, I'm using air quotes, forensic evidence is yeah. and well, how... specific to hair matching. Yeah. yeah. And the hair, and fiber. <clears throat> the hair and fiber. There were two problems with the hair and fiber analysis. Uh, speaking of the fibers... Um, that was contaminated. There was all yeah. kinds of contamination. So the integrity of the samples being examined... Uh, was really called into question. Right. And the CFS, the Center for Forensic Science, had uh, suppressed, uh, knew about the problem of contamination and suppressed it. Right. So it was a double yeah, whammy. Right. A, there was contamination, and B, they weren't forthright about it. Right. Uh, so that was uh, the fibers. And then the hair analysis, as I understand it, uh, was... Um, significantly misrepresented in terms of its probative value. I mean, I suppose, I'm, I'm no expert on hair analysis, I suppose one could eliminate uh, a hair as coming from the source of a suspect, mm -hmm. um, but uh, to draw a sort of uh, affirmative finding that uh, you can you can quantify or use to any uh, to any great extent is is now pretty well debunked. Right. Uh, there's just not enough specificity right. in so in hair like, analysis. It's, it's more of it, like a correlative, like correlative. Yeah, I mean, you might uh, you know two hairs you could probably say do not come from the same source, but if you've got two similar hairs, right. Uh, the to say you know and say well they could come from the same source right uh, it, it becomes misleading because uh, there could be a gazillion other contributors of that uh, suspect hair right uh, so it's like I say it it may be useful to eliminate somebody but it doesn't I mean it's like it it, it doesn't it shouldn't be used as evidence to identify yeah. someone. It's right. like a blood type. I mean, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. if you've got four, what do you have? Four, four A, B, O, and uh, o A, and B. Positive. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've got a few blood types. Well, they're pretty common. So you right. might be able to eliminate somebody by virtue of blood type, classic A, B, O yeah. uh, blood typing. But you're never going to be able to say because the suspect left type A and the uh, and the accused has type A that therefore they're the same person. Now, right. 
maybe it's a little bit more specific with hair. I'm no expert, but it's in that sort of realm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that this inquiry was uh, going on, I believe the the province they want they sought they wanted to compensate Guy and his family yeah. for everything right. that they went <laughs> rightfully through. Rightfully so. so. Um, and the the sum, I guess, presented to the court and agreed upon by the court was one point two five million dollars. Which doesn't seem like a lot no. to me. Even in nineteen ninety six dollars, that doesn't seem like yeah. a lot for what had happened and being dragged through so, the mud. And- I guess we're curious about how they came to that sum. <laughs> Uh, you know what? That that's where you lose me. I, 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 I can't express an opinion there. Mm-hmm. I can only assume that it was commensurate with other types of awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, there hadn't been a lot of, you know, uh, manifestly proven wrongful convictions. So where do you uh, where? Know, where do you, where, where do you set the, 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 the benchmark at? Um, I'm not sure how much Donald Marshall got. He spent 10 years in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in fairness to the government, uh, fortunately, Moran didn't spend that much time actually behind bars, That's right. relatively I think 18 speaking. 18 months total? Was that what it was? Uh, sounds Something right. Like I, yeah. I, I don't know exactly. He got, I mean, he was initially detained. He spent, he's, you know, he spent the initial period leading up to the first trial in custody. He was out after that. He was reincarcerated after his conviction, but did get bail mm-hmm. relatively quickly. So his actual period of wrongful imprisonment was mercifully short yeah uh that might have been a factor but i uh, but nonetheless being under uh under that kind of cloud for that long is uh when he never should have been yeah is i think the the bigger issue right or well certainly a a major issue yeah i mean Mm -hmm. i wouldn't want to spend five minutes behind bars (laughs) let alone yeah yeah anyway so it says here Guy attended every single day of the 10-month inquiry into his wrongful conviction and then quietly disappeared from public view. Christine's killer? Never been found. I know. After all that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. A terrible ending to a terrible story, honestly. You have to wonder if, if the investigation hadn't been so tunnel visioned in the time. and What would have you happened? Always, you always go with yeah. the could have, like, could have, would have, should have. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and there was a, a very well-known book that was very popular at the time after the second conviction written by Kirk Macon called uh, Red Rum or something like yes. that. Yes, yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, that discussed, I, I think there's a lot of information in there about the alternate suspects. And there were some pretty obvious choices for alternate suspects. Mm-hmm. I don't think at the trial the defense was able to go down that road a whole lot. Mm. I'm not sure. Right. Again, that's maybe a judge thing. or Yeah. Just- what they chose to do. Well, there, there's fairly there are fairly uh, stringent standards to uh, calling alternate suspect evidence at any trial, right? Uh, even today, so you have to you have to pick your fights. I, I think you know one of the 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 uh, counsel for the crown attorneys who 
were under scrutiny at the commission certainly tried to point some fingers at the defense. Uh, they were not not successfully in terms of the commission's findings, but you know you you do have to pick your fights when you're defending a case. And I think if there's a criticism to be leveled at the defense here, it's that it was. Uh, he was pointing fingers all over the place, uh, cooking up. Well, not he was right. There was a huge conspiracy <laughs> yes. uh, to 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 get his client, uh, but I think it got came a little bit off the rails, at least in the minds of the jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he he lost the jury. Uh, he, I mean, he lost the case because he lost the jury. And uh, the jury, lo- the jury grew very impatient with sort of the the strategies that uh, Jack Pinkowski had at trial, where everyone was out to get his client. Well, he was right. Yeah. Everyone yeah. was yeah. out yeah. to get his client. <laughs> but I guess if you're the regular guy and you kind of still believe in the police and you yeah, know, but yeah. you got to know your like you got to know your audience, yeah. right? And how you present that. <laughs> I, I mean, people who've worked with Jack Pinkowski say that you know his philosophy was always that in every case there's a conspiracy and Uh-oh. your job to find it as defense counsel is to sift out the conspiracy. Well, he was right. He was absolutely 100% right, but the message got lost. There was too much noise. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So yeah. I have just on my other, on my, my little document here, other notes. Um, one of the prosecutors was appointed to the bench. That's right, Susan McLean. Susan McLean, and she like hung on to this guilty for a while. For, she did for, like, believed uh, in in her heart of hearts that he had done it. Well, you know, and that speaks to confirmation bias and yeah. all the other uh, sort of tricks that the human mind plays with itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, she undoubtedly was sincere in her conviction that he was guilty despite the fact that there was and i would like to point out that thank god there's an appeal process because Uh, when you run into these types of things at least you might have another yeah yeah uh she (laughs) subsequently was appointed to the bench there was a bit of a hue and cry from the defense bar, or certainly some yes. some members of the defense bar, particularly those who were quite involved with Aidwick by the time she got appointed. Um, she's actually proven to be a pretty good judge, she, by okay. the way. Because uh, I remember re- like about yeah. her appointment, um, this another sort of organization for uh, in defense of the wrongfully convicted, um, which included the hurricane. Yeah, Reuben Carter. Reuben Carter, he... He quit that committee over her appointment. That's right. Yeah. He. he uh, yeah. That, that that's that that's correct. Yeah. Uh, I think, for whatever reason, I mean, there was some sort of rift as to how to deal with Susan McLean's appointment to the bench, and he took a stand that uh, this was unacceptable, mm-hmm. and I guess the rest of Aidwick wasn't ready to go that far, and and yeah. he he actually quit Aidwick. Uh, as a result anyway i mean that's these are are personal choices yeah right uh as i say uh, 
It's interesting develop the development. That Ms. McLean has proven yeah. to be actually a pretty good, a good judge, judge. Okay. and pretty fair judge. Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You reinstalled her faith in the yeah. system. But I guess the, the But eyebrows question. certainly were yeah. raised when <laughs> she was time, appointed. I'm sure. But I guess the, the bigger overall question then is how something like this could even happen in the first place. I mean, the, the Coffin Report mentions the tunnel vision and all of the bad science, but at the same time, it's like he had one trial and he was acquitted, and okay, so the Crown appeals the acquittal. Uh, and then from my readings and my research, it sounded like the defense did a pretty good job poking holes uh, in the case against Guy Paul, but still people found him guilty. Well, a big so a big just... issue, and we haven't really talked about it, was the jailhouse rats. Mm -hmm. And uh, by all accounts, they were believed by the jury. And that actually was the focus, and we haven't talked about this, and it's kind of important. The There were some definite shenanigans when it came to the jailhouse rats. I mean, firstly, they were both psychopaths. They both clearly indicated uh, that they were just desperate to get out of custody so they'd say anything. They had multiple convictions for dishonesty and all kinds of horrendous offenses. Um, at least one of them, the one who was identified... Uh, Mr. May. May. Uh, yeah. Robert Dean May or something like that. Um Actually, had recanted and then unrecanted uh, with respect to uh, the confession. I'm not sure about Mr. X, if he had uh, vacillated or not. Um, so there were all kinds of problems with their evidence. What happened, though, and this is one of the, and, and certainly the commission, to the extent that they really came down hard on anybody uh, they came down very hard on McGuigan for this, and rightly so, because uh, what they did was they orchestrated their evidence. Um, McGuigan floated prior to their testimony. He floated through the uh, officer in charge an offer that they don't have to testify. If you don't want to testify, you don't have to. And this was put to both of them through the uh, chief investigator, Fitzpatrick. It was probably and almost certainly a disingenuous offer to let them off the hook if they don't want to testify. And But what it did was in um, through... McGuigan, being a very clever guy, knew that the defense would go after these guys in all sorts of ways, and um, what he almost certainly did was he planted with the witnesses the opportunity for them to say, oh, I didn't have to be here. I'm here because I wanted the Crown offered me the opportunity to not testify. So I'm here completely voluntarily. And that was elicited in re-examination in the case of May and in cross-examination in the case of Mr. X. The other thing was this supposed offer to not testify um, was not divulged to the defense. 
So the defense didn't know that supposedly, obviously in very disingenuous fashion, these guys had been given the opportunity to not testify. Uh, so that was withheld. So the defense got completely sandbagged by this. Well, apparently this made a pretty strong impression on the part of the jury. So all of a sudden, these loathsome uh, jailhouse rats had their credibility hugely bolstered through this so little wrong. device. <laughs> right. yep. yeah. And uh, that may well have been the, the deciding factor right. in, in this case. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the commission had a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. But it was one of the more uh, reprehensible elements of this case. And am I right in believing that these types of uh, jailhouse informants aren't, I mean, people don't sort of go down that road anymore. They're, they're believed to be unreliable. The, the commission had them. very, yeah, the yeah. commission mm -hmm. came down with very strong recommendations about the resort to jailhouse mm -hmm. uh, informants and that they be much more thoroughly vetted and, uh, you know, supposedly a whole host of factors. I don't think you see jailhouse rats that often anymore. I'm not a, I'm not aware of too many cases involving them post moron. Mm -hmm. They used to be pretty commonplace. I don't think you see them a whole lot anymore. Yeah. Right. For this reason, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah, because they're yes, because right? there's a tit yeah. for tat, and they Absolutely. are highly motivated mm. yeah. to fabricate. Yeah. I mean, what could be better than a get out of jail free card? Totally. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. If I yeah, were they used to be yeah. pretty. I think they were much more commonplace <laughs> pre moron Back then, yeah. All right. Um, do we have anything else that we need to wrap up on this one? Or That's... should we? do you have a good headline for this week to lighten things up? Yeah, I'll lighten the mood a little with a <laughs> weird news headline. <laughs> this one comes from Kentucky. A man dressed as a Coke bottle robbed a restaurant. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he, like there's, there's um, CCTV video. Of a man in a Coke Of a man in a Coke bottle. Oh. Robbing a restaurant. Was it Pepsi or Coca-Cola? It was Coke. It all was right, Coke. Right. Just, <laughs> just, the real thing. Yeah. So there, you <laughs> there you go. Right. And Jacob, for you, do you have any weird, uh, interesting, fun Canadian facts for us or any stories that you'd like to relate to the audience or anything? Well, supposedly, uh, speaking of Coke bottles, so um, <laughs> and and weird disguises. Uh, back in the day, when the holdup squad of Toronto was notorious for beating confessions out of suspects, uh, this is supposedly true. It was before my time, but everyone tells me this is a true story. That they had a because because at. At trial, they know that the accused is going to say, well, these cops beat the daylights out of mm -hmm. me into giving this confession. So they had a cop dress up in a big bunny suit <laughs> and lay the beating. Oh, that, that oh can't leave any. God, Easter must have been terrible hours. Lay the beating on the suspect, <laughs> who then, of course, would have to testify that testify he was by a large yeah. <laughs> That this guy in a large bunny suit beat the shit out of him. Oh, no. oh my god, I believe it. I believe. And that's yeah. supposedly true. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That's that's elaborate. Yeah. 
great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, anyway, well, thank you so much for yes. clarifying right. everything here. And You're welcome. We hope you come back. Yeah, wonderful to have oh, you. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to. Thank you so much. So, okay. and uh, so I've been Shelly. I've been Rachel. And I'm Jacob. And if you need to check me out, I'm at www.lslaw.ca. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you here next time. <laughs>